Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about an event that if you were alive when it happened, you remember where you were. Uh, my parents still talk about that. And uh, like those of us who experienced September 11th, remember where we were. People remember where they were on November 22nd, 1963, the day that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Today is an anniversary of that day. We mark that day through a conversation with our old friend, uh, Professor Steve Knott. Steve uh, taught for many years, as many of our listeners know, at the United States Naval War College. He has taught in Ashbrook's Master of Arts in American History and Government program. He's taught for our Teaching American History seminars and uh, is always a delight to have with us on the podcast, uh, and particularly his latest book, I want to recommend heartily to our listeners. We've uh, mentioned it before, but it deserves mention again, particularly on this day. And it's called Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy. And it's a wonderful, I think I'd call it a mix of a kind of memoir and political analysis that is a very lively, engaging book, not necessarily your typical academic book. Uh, it has a lot of rich layers to it of the personal the historical, the political. I think you're all going to love it. If you don't have it, let me strongly recommend you go get a copy. It's from the University of Kansas Press. Uh, it's called Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy by Professor Steve Knott. Steve, thanks for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Well, thanks, Jeff. It's always a pleasure to be with you, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Uh, November 22, 1963. Um, it happens to be, oddly, uh, I was born to the day four years later, November 22, 1967. So wow. that date has some significance in our household. My parents do remember where they were that day. Um, why has that day, of all the days in the 20th century United States history, why has that day had such a profound effect on the psyches of those who were there? Uh, it's a terrific question, Jeff. Um, and I, too, remember I'm older than you. And uh, I was in the first grade when President Kennedy was murdered. And we were about to get on our school buses in my small little New England town out in central Massachusetts. And I heard one of the teachers whisper to my teacher, who was standing right next to me, that the president had been shot. And then we boarded our buses, went home. All the kids were talking about it, of course, on the bus. And when I walked into my house, uh, my mother was sitting in front of this grainy black and white television, and she was watching the news from Dallas. And it was the first time, by the way, I ever saw my mother cry. And I think for people of my generation and older, uh, as you mentioned, Jeff, I would I would liken November 22nd, I would liken this day to September 11th. It's always going to be embedded in the minds of folks who were alive then. 
as a very dark day. And I think in part, to answer your question, Jeff, uh, you know, John F. Kennedy was very young. He's our youngest elected president. I mean, T.R. was younger when he inherited the presidency from McKinley. But Kennedy was the youngest elected president. He was only 46 when he was murdered. His 34-year-old wife is beside him in that vehicle. Um, she was one of our youngest first ladies. And then they had two very young children. Uh, John Jr. was about to turn three on November 25th, the day his father would be buried. And Caroline was about to turn six on November 28th, I believe, 27th or 28th. Young family, photogenic. Kennedy seemed to be in the prime of his life. Now, we now know he was actually quite ill. Uh, he was not the healthy, vigorous president that he uh, conveyed. Uh, he had a number of illnesses. But nonetheless, at the time, the fact that somebody so young, who seemed to have so much going for him, um, was struck down in the prime of his life was just shocking to, to a nation that had not seen an assassination, a successful one, since that of William McKinley in 1901. So it had been a good 62 years or so. Uh, it was just truly shocking. I think it came at a time, both during the Eisenhower and Kennedy years, perhaps you could argue, that America was at the peak of its Cold War power. And again, the idea that a lone gunman, I believe, uh, was able to kill the leader of the free world was just truly shocking. Take us back to that day, November 22nd. Why is John F. Kennedy in Dallas? What's he doing there? And what's he doing there riding in that motorcade the way that he was? Yeah, uh, good. another good question. He was there, Jeff, to patch up a dispute in some ways between more conservative factions of the Texas Democratic Party. Uh, led by Governor John Conley, and a liberal wing of the Democratic Party, led by Senator Ralph Yarborough. Uh, those two men were barely talking to one another. Vice President Linda Johnson got sort of caught in the middle of that fight. Conley was Johnson's protege. Johnson was also on the outs with Senator Yarborough. So there was a lot of friction in a very important state that Kennedy had carried in 1960 and hoped to carry again in 1964. So that was part of the reason. Another factor, Jeff, was that President Kennedy had made a nationally televised address in June of that year, in which he firmly placed his administration uh, behind the civil rights movement being led by Dr. King and others. And when he did that, his poll numbers in the South began to drop. And he actually spent the week prior to the trip to Dallas in Florida, where he had seen some erosion in his poll numbers. And of course, he had seen some erosion in Texas as well. So these were two trips, the Florida trip, the Texas trip, designed to shore up states that Kennedy viewed as essential to his reelection. As far as the open limousine, Jeff, that was John F. Kennedy's um, desire. He did not like to have this bubble top that they had that they could put on the limousine. He liked to be um, seen by the people. And to be perfectly honest, that bubble top was not bulletproof. It's not at all clear that, that would have made too much of a difference. 
but it was essentially President Kennedy's desire to really be seen by the public, and it, it's he and his team that veto the use of that bubble tuck. All right, then take us through the day itself and the assassination on the day. I want to, call, of course, talk about the effects of this, the historical significance, and obviously the arguments about one lone gunman or not. But just again, for listeners who may not have as uh, full a grasp of the actual events of the day, walk us through it. He begins the day in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, he delivers a speech to the Fort Worth Chamber of Commerce. Uh, although I should add, before he actually goes to the Fort Worth speech, this was not on his schedule. He actually walked out from this hotel in Fort Worth and gave an impromptu off-the-cuff speech to a large crowd that had assembled outside the hotel. Uh, Kennedy had taken some criticism for only speaking to the Fort Worth Chamber of Commerce, which was seen by local Democrats as a bastion of republicanism. Uh -huh. So I think that message had gotten through to him and so he he spends an extra 15 or 20 minutes speaking to you know more the more blue collar folk perhaps outside the hotel then does the fort worth speech uh he and the first lady and vice president johnson governor conley traveled by plane the very short hop uh, from fort worth to dallas's love field and then they proceed on a very lengthy motorcade through downtown dallas now it's interesting to know there were concerns ahead of time about Kennedy visiting Dallas. Uh, Ambassador Adlai Stevenson had been roughly received about three weeks earlier. He'd been hit on the head with a placard. Uh, there were a lot of John Birch Society supporters in Dallas who viewed Kennedy, Stevenson, even former President Eisenhower as uh, suspect, to say the least. So Stevenson had gotten a rough reception there was a lot of concern about the reception Kennedy would get, but the point is on that motorcade through downtown Dallas, the crowd was 10 or 12 people deep, and they were very warmly receiving the president. And in fact, we know that one of the last words, the, the last words that President Kennedy would have heard was from Nellie Conley, Governor Conley's wife, who was seated right in front of the president, turned to him and said, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you. And it was only a few seconds after that that the, the shots were fired on this motorcade. This is probably a good point as in, of, uh, of any, Jeff, to mention that unfortunately for Dallas, they're going to be portrayed for years, if not decades afterwards, as the city of hate that killed President Kennedy. Now, there's some grounds for that. Again, it was the home base of the John Birch Society. There were a number of white supremacist organizations operating there. But the person who killed President Kennedy was about as far removed from those groups as you can get. Uh, one author has argued that Lee Harvey Oswald was the only Marxist within 100 miles of Dealey Plaza. So the assassination itself, as the motorcade is coming through, happens at what time? And because he's been in Fort Worth, as you say, earlier in the day, happens yes. at one time and then what happens for the rest of that day or afternoon? So he uh, he is shot at approximately 1230 Central Time in this Dealey Plaza area of Dallas. It was at the very tail end of the sort of downtown motorcade route. 
He's on his way to speak at a trade center, an enormous trade center uh, uh, in Dallas, which I believe still exists, uh, where he was going to speak to community leaders. That was probably only 10 or 15 minutes away at most. They were just about to get on a freeway, the Stemmons Freeway, when the shots in Dealey Plaza rang out. Um, most people, not all, most people in Dealey Plaza said they heard three shots. Uh, some said they heard four, and of course, if there were four, that would have meant there was somebody else other than Lee Harvey Oswald shooting at the president. Uh, but as soon as the shots were fired, the, we believe the Warren Commission argued and others have argued the first shot missed. Uh, they now think it hit a um, street light, street pole that extended out over the street and deflected off and actually wounded somebody who was quite a distance away, just slightly a chip uh, from the sidewalk, the bullet hitting the sidewalk. The first shot misses, second shot hits President Kennedy uh, right behind the, uh, just above his shoulder blades and exits through his neck and hits Governor Conley in front of him. And of course the third and fatal shot uh, hits President Kennedy in the head. The Secret Service driver, unfortunately, when he heard the commotion associated with that second shot, the one that wounded the president. He actually takes his foot off the accelerator and turns around to look at what's going on in the back seat. And in so doing, the car slows down considerably. And I think, unfortunately, that hates Oswald in terms of hitting or killing President Kennedy. As soon as that third shot hits, an agent in the backup vehicle had been running towards the car. He heard that second shot, immediately jumped off. He jumps on the back of the car, pushes Jacqueline Kennedy into the back seat. She's either trying to get out of that car or I hate to be, you know, some people say she was actually trying to pick up pieces of President Kennedy's skull. Uh, but this agent pushes her into the back seat and they speed off to Parkland Hospital where President Kennedy is pronounced dead at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, you mentioned the Secret Service, Service uh, presence and response. Did, were there, you mentioned the possibility of threats. What was the Secret Service's evaluation of the threat situation? And what kind of security arrangements had they made for this trip, and in particularly for this motorcade? Yeah. Again, Jeff, uh, the Kennedy White House was very determined not to restrict uh, President Kennedy, not to the kind of isolation we see as standard practice today was just not practiced then. And that's due in part uh, to President Kennedy's desire to not be cut off or living in a bubble from the American people. But believe it or not, the handling of the threats in Dallas and in also some of these other cities was handled uh, by, in many cases by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And Lee Harvey Oswald was actually uh, somebody subject to FBI oversight, if you will. There was an FBI agent by the name of James Hosty, H-O-S-T-Y, who had the Oswald file in a sense uh, Oswald, by the way, had lived in the Soviet Union for well over two years, which, needless to say, was unusual for an ex-Marine. 
and uh, at the height of the Cold War, raised a lot of red flags. He had returned to the U.S. with a Russian wife, and so the FBI had kept tabs on him, but obviously loose tabs. And of course, after this disaster occurs, one of J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director's uh, concerns was that his agency, his agents would be fingered for the blame for not, you know, making sure that Oswald on that particular day was nowhere near the presidential parade group. Of course, that was not the case. So to the extent that there may well have been a cover-up, um, there's no question J. Edgar Hoover had a motive to sort of keep the FBI supervision of Oswald somewhat under wraps, uh, but also uh, there were other government entities as well that I think had a, an agenda of sorts. And I'm not arguing here that they were part of the assassination, they were not, but there were various bureaucratic motives that played into the hands of the conspiracy theorists, who by the way, I would argue today have actually won the debate uh, yeah, it's Kennedy. interesting when you look at pop culture, uh, I think that movies, the internet, the general reception to the idea that there's one gunman, there's a lot of scoffing at that. There that is. Response. Uh, obviously, after the event, the Warren Commission is appointed, uh, named yes. after Chief Justice Earl Warren. Um, tell us about the work of the commission and its findings. So President Johnson was determined to put to rest any notion that President Kennedy had been killed in some type of broader conspiracy, whether it involves, you know, Dallas oil men and right-wing groups, but most particularly Johnson was concerned about perhaps any Soviet or Cuban involvement. And he decides to form a special commission headed by Chief Justice Earl Warren, as you mentioned, by the way, Warren did not wanna undertake this task. This is a classic example example of the Johnson treatment working quite well. Uh, Johnson twisting the Chief Justice's arm. To Which get was him. no small feat. Earl Warren was a pretty formidable <laughs> politician. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, and Johnson also had to twist the arms of his mentor, Senator Richard Russell from Georgia. Uh, they appoint Congressman Gerald Ford from Michigan. Uh, you know, it was a fairly a former uh, prominent foreign policy establishment member. John McCloy and others, very prominent members of the American establishment, if you will. But Johnson is also, again, making it clear it would be helpful if we could downplay or dismiss the, the already circulating conspiracy theories, particularly those who are arguing of, with a, of, for a Soviet or Cuban connection. Johnson was convinced that if there was a Soviet or Cuban connection, it could well lead to World War III and possibly a nuclear exchange. And he's determined to avoid that. Now that may seem over the top to us sitting here on this day in 2023, but keep in mind, this is only a little more than a year removed from the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it was in Johnson's mind, it was not out of the question that if, if the conclusion was this foreign involvement the American people would be eager for revenge and it would spiral out of control. So how did the Warren Commission actually work? When did it get started? What did it do? And when did it hand in its final report? It got started within a matter of weeks, Jeff. I think by January of 64, they are well underway. Now look, the, name, the big names that I mentioned, 
they, one of the first things they do is hire a staff and it's these staff lawyers who tend to conduct the nuts and bolts of the investigation uh, they are done with their work by november 23rd 1964 so a year to the day after the assassination and again i think that's somewhat reflective of president johnson's desire to put this thing to bed and to move on past the kennedy assassination now in addition to sort of wanting to make sure that there was no soviet and Cuban connection. There was also a desire not to reveal the fact that the United States government under both presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy had been trying to kill Fidel Castro. Uh -huh. And yes, that was considered highly secret. And the name of that operation, at least during the Kennedy years, was Operation Mongoose. Uh, it was a campaign to destabilize the Cuban government, but it also included efforts to kill Fidel Castro. President Johnson was actually convinced in private, never said this publicly, this isn't going to come out until after he's dead, uh, that he believed that the Cubans got to President Kennedy first. Um, so he's trying to keep that from happening. And, and so what I'm saying here is this Operation Mongoose that was directed by Robert Kennedy um was left off there's nothing no reference to it whatsoever in the warren commission report it's not until 1975-76 that the existence of operation mongoose is revealed and that's one of the key points where the whole conspiracy complex begins to flourish well if we were trying to kill castro it would make perfect sense for somebody some other entity who want to kill our president i should add jeff excuse me, quick point, November 1964, 86 or 7% of the American public in one poll said they believed the Warren Commission report that one gunman was involved. Recent polls show an overwhelming majority of Americans, as you mentioned, no longer believe that to be the case. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. Hi, this is John Moser, chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches US history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country. And they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org programs. All right, let's talk for a moment about why folks believe that report the report itself, how did it deal with the conspiracy theories? The idea that somehow it was right-wing 
groups, uh, radical groups, or it was somehow a Soviet or Cuban connection. People have talked about the mafia, of course. Yes. People have even pointed the finger at LBJ himself. Yes. Um, how did the commission try to uh, uh, deal with and dissuade people from those theories? They spent an exhaustive amount of time digging into the life, life and motivations of Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, and the fact is that Oswald had, as I mentioned, lived in the Soviet Union. They recounted those years. And that does seem perhaps to provide some evidence, perhaps, of a Soviet connection. So the commission spends a lot of time noting the fact that Oswald was a self-proclaimed Marxist, that he had lived in the Soviet Union, worked there for over two years, married a Russian wife, brought her back to the United States. But the emphasis in the report is of a loner, a young, Oswald's only 24, by the way, when he kills President Kennedy, a young loner in a, brought up in a dysfunctional family. He had gone to 12 different schools in the course of his life, uh, a very unstable mother. Um, he and Oswald himself had been diagnosed by some school psychologists somewhere along the lines of having various emotional problems. That's the focus. It's all on Oswald. There's not a lot of time spent dismissing alternatives that are being, you know, bounced around on the airwaves, even at this time, but just a complete focus on Oswald as the lone gunman. And, you know, I got to say, Jeff, I think the Warren Commission, you know, the report was definitely incomplete for the for the reasons that I mentioned. I actually believe in the end they got it right, but I completely understand why a number of Americans don't believe that, because the fact is the government did keep certain bits of information out, particularly about Operation Mongoose, and the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald is killed 48 hours after he kills President Kennedy, that has all the signs of somebody wanting to silence this man. Let's talk about that for a minute. The, the, the killing of Lee Harvey Oswald, a lot of folks who have, especially people who have seen the video of that, wonder yes. how in the world was that possible? Yeah. And who was the guy who shot him? And again, you say, as you said, it conjures in people's minds the idea they're trying to shut Oswald up so he doesn't spill the beans on some conspiracy. Yes. Look, the Dallas Police Department did not handle the whole situation well. Uh, from the minute Oswald was arrested on Friday afternoon on this day in 1963, um, they were parading him in front of the cameras in the Dallas police station. I mean, the, poli the police station itself was basically taken over by the media. So the media is literally down the hall from a room where Oswald is being interrogated. And there's a couple of points at which they move him. And he's being, you know, he's being mobbed by the press. Um, this would never, I hope to God, this would God. never happen today. Uh, but he was remarkably exposed and he was given, in a sense, a platform uh, to make statements to the media. And then on, so, so Kennedy is killed on Friday afternoon. Uh, on Sunday morning, the 24th, the Dallas Police Department announces they're going to move him, Oswald, from police headquarters to the county jail. And the press is there again in the basement 
to witness him being transferred and put into a uh you know police vehicle to be taken to the county jail now this is where jack ruby comes in ruby was a dallas strip club owner known to the dallas police department you know partly because his club being a strip club there's you know a tendency for uh, incidents to occur so the cops would have they, they, they knew him well and i think some of the cops may have even frequented his place him, themselves but uh, and you can actually hear the police officer who's escorting Oswald when he's shot, calling out Ruby by name. So he was a recognizable figure to the Dallas Police Department. If you believe Jack Ruby, if you believe the Warren Commission, and I know a lot of folks don't, Ruby happened to be walking by the Dallas Police Headquarters, saw the open garage door, walked right in nobody stopped him again it was kind of an open far more open than it should have been um and he said that he saw oswald emerge from the elevator with a smirk on his face now ruby would testify later that he was devastated by the shooting president kennedy devastated by the fact that there was this young widow with two young children who now defend for herself and here comes this guy with a smirk on his face Ruby pulls out his little snub-nosed pistol and shoots Oswald, I think, twice, uh, fatally. You, look, uh, I totally understand why folks find so, this suspicious. It, it does need to be mentioned, had the Dallas Police Department moved Lee Harvey Oswald at the time at which they said they were going to, Jack Ruby would not have been there. Now you could say, well, somebody must have tipped him off, and I suppose that's possible. But uh, Ruby always said his motive was he was devastated by the shooting, the shame that it brought on Dallas, and the disastrous consequences for Mrs. Kennedy and her family. And he was when he saw this little smirking guy, he just couldn't take it anymore. At the time, you said that that was more common, that sort of police practice. Was yeah. there... Once Ruby shoots Oswald, was there a sort of a storm of criticism of the Dallas police and the Dallas city administration? Or There was. There okay. was some, Jeff. And it, it just reinforced this image of Dallas. Uh, Dallas, uh, you know, unfairly in a lot of northern cities, including where I grew up, was seen as kind of a frontier town still in the 1960s, kind of the Wild West. And both of these events, the shooting of the president, the uh, Ruby murder of Oswald, the, the rough reception that Adlai Stevenson had received just a few weeks earlier, the rough reception that Vice President Johnson had received during the campaign of 1960. He was spit, upon, spit on, etc. Uh, it just reinforced this image of both a, a city folk and a government that was... Um, not doing things the way you should do in the mid 20th century again i'm not necessarily saying that but that was a widely shared perception um for for our listeners who might not know what ended up happening to jack ruby jack ruby dies in 1966 or 7 not a two to three years after his trial he dies i believe of natural causes I believe it was some type of cancer. I, it could be leukemia. I uh, may be off about that. Um, but he lives long enough to make a number of statements. I think there were even some interviews occasionally. Um, 
but he was found guilty of you know killing Lee Harvey Oswald I think in the minds of many Americans to be perfectly blunt uh for time he was viewed almost as a hero let's talk about just before we talk about the historical significance of it one last question that some people have with listeners particularly contemporary listeners talk about in in thinking about the conspiracy theory and debunking it and not being persuaded by it some people are have argued as you know looking from where Oswald was I think it was the sixth floor yes floor museum now where Ashbrook actually does a number of programs for teachers there it's an amazing historical spot but some people have argued it wasn't technically possible for someone to make that shot yeah in that situation yeah, yeah Jeff believe it I was just there a month ago thank thanks to the teaching American history program I was there with Candy Collins and we did a a two-day discussion at the sixth floor museum about about President Kennedy that was the first time I'd ever been there and we held our discussions on the seventh floor so we were directly above where Oswald shot President Kennedy and you're able to stand in that corner window not of the sixth floor that's all plexiglassed off but on the seventh floor Jeff, it, it, from my perspective, uh, President Kennedy was a, a, a sitting duck. Um, you're talking about a Marine marksman uh, who had really, um, I mean, it, it's it's a small little, Dealey Plaza is a very contained geographic area. The vehicle was essentially under the window of the sixth floor. And again, you're talking about a Marine marksman. But your your question the initial assumption was that Oswald had killed President Kennedy in the span of something some people said as few as 6.2 seconds and this is based on the Zapruder film taken by a Dallas resident named Abraham Zapruder who began to roll his camera just as President Kennedy's limousine uh turned onto Elm Street we thought the FBI thought Life magazine that bought Zapruder's film also thought that Zapruder had captured the whole thing from beginning to end. And it's remarkably rapid. It's six or seven seconds. We now know, and I think I can say this with near certainty, it wasn't six seconds. And in fact, Zapruder had not started filming until after that first shot had been fired the one that had got deflected by the light pole. There's a, a researcher by the name of Max Holland, an author by the name of Max Holland, I should say, who's, I think, made a very convincing argument that Oswald had over 11 seconds to fire three different shots, one missed, two hit. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not somebody who shoots uh, rifles, but again, having just been to the sixth floor, and looking down on that street where they now have X's for two spots where President Kennedy was hit, it, it was not a difficult shot. Um, in your book, Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy, obviously you talk about the importance of the president for you growing up and for your uh, maturation as a person, uh, but also politically and thinking yeah. through the legacy of Kennedy. His assassination, and its historical legacy. Um, it became incredibly powerful in the American mind uh, yes. and in the American imagination, including in popular culture, TVs and film. 
Talk a little bit about the importance of the historical legacy of the assassination of the president. I think, Jeff, because of the fact that this was the first time an American president had been killed in an age of mass communications. In other words, this is literally the first time that the television networks, at that time there were only three of them, ABC, CBS, NBC, they broke into their coverage and they stayed with one story from beginning to end, all the way through the funeral. That had never happened before. So for those of us who were alive then, even, even a young, young person like me, that was all you saw for the next 72 hours. The images were just gut-wrenching. Gut I mean, young John F. Kennedy Jr. saluting his father's casket. Uh, Mrs. Kennedy walking behind the casket from the White House to the church, despite being the Secret Service pleading with her not to do that. Uh, the black riderless horse bucking all the way through Washington, D.C. Some poetically inclined observers were saying, you know, that was a metaphor for this horse not wanting to let go of the commander-in-chief. All of that incredibly powerful imagery uh, persists to this day in folks of my generation and older. And having worked at the Kennedy Library in Boston long ago, uh, when it first opened, there was hardly a day that went by, Jeff, when I didn't see some group of tourists my age or older, you know, still crying about this. 20. 30 years later. So it's got something to do, as I said earlier, with the youth of the president, but I also attribute a lot of it to these images that this country had never seen before, almost in real time. How did it change American politics or public life? Obviously the immediate effect is Lyndon Johnson becomes president and takes the presidency and the country in a certain direction. What effect do you think that it had on the on the direction of American politics? For a lot of my fellow baby boomers, it, be, it began to be it, the Kennedy assassination was seen. Uh, I don't share this belief, but a lot of my fellow baby boomers came to see it as the point at which the country began to decline. Uh, that nothing was quite the same since then. I personally think that's a dramatic overstatement, but. For many Americans, that is, to this day, you will hear them say that it's all been downhill. I would add to that, uh, for a lot of folks on the American, on the left side of the political equation, it confirmed to them, again, I don't share this view, but it confirmed to many of them that this, our country was a somewhat corrupt, uh, maybe more than somewhat corrupt, a uh, violent nation, and that somehow, somewhere, there were, to use a term from modern times, there was a deep state that was involved in this killing. And you see it in a film like Oliver Stone's JFK, where, you know, the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, the entire military industrial complex, essentially, along with Texas oil men, are kind of thrown together as suspects in the murder of the president. That is and was a commonly held belief on the left in this country, and it persisted in the 60s and into the 70s. Unfortunately, one of the things that bothers me is that has now, that deep state belief has now sort of migrated into portions of the American right, 
And I find that inaccurate, but also particularly unhealthy in a republic. For our listeners who want to know more about this really important uh, moment in American history, what are some books, what are some films, some TV shows, what some resources yeah. that they could take a look at? I would strongly recommend, again, the work of Max Holland. Um, he, he writes a number of shorter articles. You can Google his name. Uh, but he's also given a number of talks, one of which was at the Sixth Floor Museum. Uh, another one, a terrific talk, I believe, at the Kansas City, uh, Missouri Public Library. Uh, lengthy discussions where he dissects that D Zapruder film, and he really dissects any number of the conspiracy theories that still seem quite popular. I would strongly recommend the work of Max Holland. I would also recommend the work of uh, an author by the name of Gerald Posner, P-O-S-N-E-R, who's written a book called Case Closed. It's, it's actually fairly old at this point, I'd say at least 20, maybe 30 years old. But Posner does a pretty good job at dissecting a number of the conspiracy theories as well. People have pushed back, and I think Posner's had to make a few changes of some of his initial uh, findings. But on the whole, I think Case Close is a very reputable work and one that I would strongly recommend. Well, uh, on this day 60 years ago, uh, this epoch-making uh, event happened. Thank you, uh, Steve, for helping us to understand more about it more deeply, think about it more deeply with you. And again, to our listeners, let, let me strongly recommend Steve's wonderful book, Coming to Terms with John F. Kennedy. Uh, it will help you understand Kennedy the man, Kennedy the effect that he had on a person like Steve, and the legacy of John F. Kennedy. Steve Knott, thanks for taking the time, as always, to join us on the American Idea. Thank you, Jeff. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.